Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're going to be talking about visual impact. Today we're talking to Taryn. How's it going, Taryn? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, thanks for coming on. Mm-hmm. Um, so Taryn, please tell our audience where they might know you from and how you got started with Tabletop. Okay. Um, I play Rascal uh, in Zero D20's Fracturia. Um, Rascal is a wonderful bard. Uh my, I have a slogan and everything. It's a half elf, full throttle. So like, love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's wild. Um, and I got into um, these like tabletop uh, games through how I got to think about. Oh, my roommates. When I first moved to Vancouver, I got an apartment in New West, and um, I was really lucky. I, I landed a place with some. Um, Antifa dudes uh, who were going to start a new campaign. It was going to be such a good way to get to know new roommates and finally sink my teeth into Dungeons and Dragons. And I'd been waiting for that. And I was like, here we go. Anyway, I learned that I have a slightly different playing style than <laughs> than my roommates. Um, but yeah, finding your way to like making the kind of game that you want is an important part of finding your way to DMing. So it. It feels like almost everybody that I've talked to that if they didn't start playing when they were really young, like in elementary or high school, the story always seems to be, I wanted to play, I didn't know who to play with. Yeah. And then magically it just happened. Mm-hmm. And because that's what it was like for me. Like I had been wanting to play for years and then I just decided, you know what? Screw this. The beginner box just came out. I'm going to pick that up and run for people. Yes, <laughs> yes. And then I, in my experience, when that's the case and somebody's been chomping at the bit to go, as soon as they get that chance, they don't stop. <laughs> they just like DM or play twice a week for the rest of their lives. <laughs> or start a podcast about or D&D. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or play on a podcast about D&D. <laughs> Or if you're me, do both. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, see, there's anyway. the goal. <laughs> so, visual impact. Um, mm-hmm. What is it? Yeah, so um, in my DMing style, I think it's extremely important to offer somebody um, a stage like in their mind. And I want people to be able to see it. I want them to be struck by the images that you can kind of cast with your words. Um, I think that in order to really get lost in a game to role play with it, and to commit to your character, you have to visualize it in a meaningful way. And I'm not talking about having minis on the table. I think that is, that's just going to be insufficient. Um, what you need to see or, or, or what you need to hear are metaphors and what you need to see is like this cascading um, explosions in your mind. Like I want... Um, in every episode, I'm striving to have a moment that feels like a punch to the gut for the players, something that couldn't happen in reality, something that makes them feel like, oh, shit, yeah, this is a fantasy realm, and my character gets to live this awesome life that I couldn't have access to in any other way. So that's what I'm after. That's, for me, the importance of visual impact. I think that is something that a lot of DMs try to do, and it's I know it's something that I struggle with, so I am yeah. really happy that you're here talking about <laughs> it because I know I need help with it. Because 
especially now that I'm playing on Roll20, so we're not all sitting around the same table. Yeah. Um, being able to describe something in a way that gets that little just like <gasps> from your players mm-hmm. is is so satisfying to be able to describe something. And haven't always been able to do it, but like when I was wrapping up the campaign, I was able to in the the basically the big boss of the campaign was a lich and he was trying to take over this source of magic and in the final battle i had mapped this all out and i had worked with a player because he wanted his character to die so i made sure that it would be this big epic thing and i remember when i described like you know they finally like they've all been super powered basically because of a bunch of stuff that happened and they finally killed the lich and he like falls into the source of magic and they're like oh no this can't be good and i just start to describe like the ground starts to quake and then a giant dragon like i just described the dragon coming up from under the ground and like appearing and they realize like describing like you can tell that the lich is taking it over like it's starting to like its skin is rotting off and all this stuff and just i could hear them just being like oh oh my god no and like (laughs) that is really satisfying when you get that that reaction from your players that you know that they might not be imagining exactly what you are, but mm. what they're imagining is awesome. Yeah, yeah. It is so satisfying. It's like absolutely why I want to do this. And it's the same thing that I strive for as a player as I do as a DM. Um, I want to give people those moments of like satisfaction, you know, and just immersement. So I totally get that. Um, if I could talk for a moment about the campaign that I am running now. Um, I had a similar moment with a dragon I love to share. Uh, so... That's so weird. Um, my players needed to take out a lord, and he was going to be in the back float of a parade. And so there's all these creatures in the parade, and they're, you know, trotting along, and they're fairly dead-eyed. But on just in front of the back float is this, um, uh, like, dragon, but made out of confetti. And uh, a player cast, like, um, what do you say, like... Uh, what is it? You can cut this out. This is all just shit. But <laughs> fairy fire or something? Um, anyway, they cast fairy fire and um, a green bolt of light hit the tail of the dragon. And all of this confetti like in a string, almost like um, dominoes, caught fire. And all these pieces of paper burnt up. And underneath it, you could see the real scales. And this thing that everybody thought was just an ornate decoration came to life and reared on his hind legs to attack these players. There's a really sweet moment at the end of the battle because they couldn't beat it because they were too low leveled. But he was just standing on top of this burning float, completely immersed in green flame. And all of these pieces of confetti that had fallen off of him when he beat his wings were in the air burning. And people also like were, uh, they had um, reduced visibility because of all the confetti in the air. So it affected how they could play and creating a striking visual that inhibits regular gameplay was a really good way to have them be constantly reminded that they're in a different environment than sitting around a table. So that was a moment of pride for me in my new campaign. I'm so excited. Yeah, I think, I think, I, I tend to think of stuff like this in terms of TV tropes, like Ooh. the wiki that you lose all of your t- free time into because there's just so much fun stuff to read. Mm. Um, but one of the terms that comes to mind is the holy shit quotient. Like nice. how many times, like when you're watching a movie or reading a book, like something happens and you're like, holy shit, like that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Or like it's terrifying or whatever, like that that 
the number of times that you say it per episode or per movie, like the more that you say it or that you feel it, the more entertaining something can be, especially if it's meant to be like high action adventure, that kind of thing. And that is, that's something that I've tried to do a couple of times. And like, I can't do it every session because I only have so much time to set this <laughs> stuff up. But when I manage to pull off like two or three in a single session, I feel pretty good. Yeah. But I've only done that, I think, once or twice in yeah. a, a like two and a half year campaign. <laughs> I love those moments, though. I love them. I, don't, I really, really, I want to create a lot of them. It's just, I don't know, I get the most fun out of it. Yeah. They're so satisfying. Um, but getting away from specific examples, maybe, mm-hmm. how do you go about creating those moments? Like what kind of planning goes into them and, you know, stuff like that? Mm-hmm. So something that I realized worked extremely well um, is writing a sort of introduction to every session or episode. So if you actually sit down and you you write the way that you want um to sort of introduce your players and get them back into it. I found that really helpful because, um, I mean, the first time I did a one shot, I wrote out um, like a paragraph uh, so that I knew everybody would be in the same state. So they would all come to it with this agreed upon like terms of the world. And they're like, oh yeah, this is how like beaten and downtrodden all of our characters are. Like, okay, like I'm moved a little bit, but I'm, but I'm feeling it. Um, and so preparing a sort of script just at the beginning always helps me sort of set that stage, that theater of the mind stage that I'm talking about. Um, And I like, just pause here. I like brought that paragraph with me that for my very first session. So I can read that if you guys have space for that in the podcast. Um, Yeah. Okay. If it doesn't work, we can cut it. But um, I think it like talks about how, I mean, I think it is a pretty good example of how I wanted to get everybody on that same track. Okay. And also, this is, I just like writing. It's fun. <laughs> okay. Um, our four adventurers stumble in the darkness. For seven consecutive days, you've been lost in the Chernobog. These woods have sucked the light from your eyes, blinding you to sur- your surroundings. One more second. Blinding you to your surroundings. The thick moss that hung from the branches above completely sucking the noise right out of the air. The Chernobog's darkness has silenced screams. Few adventurers have known greater isolation. Pause. In that, I was with a new group of friends, and so I really wanted to kind of use that as a metaphor to talk about loneliness and moving to a new city and how we're all, like, we were all new friends, right? So we were searching for that connection. Okay, and to continue on. Without each other, the isolating magics of the Chernobog would have claimed your sanity. It was a small concession to your pride, but the gods looked down upon our adventurers as they all held hands, forming a chain. Some days, or some nights, who could tell you felt your friend's fingers release their grip, forgetting to fight, and you clung tighter, tight enough for two. The gods kept watching from above as you could only remember the sun and hang on to each other. But you are on your way out now, and you can feel it. As you all trudge through the woods, your darkest days truly feel like they are behind you. And as you leave the bog, the rough dangling vines seem to pat you on the back in applause, gliding over your shoulder. A lovely change from the strangulation attempts they've made dates prior. Suddenly you can hear again. The first thing you hear is the squelching thick mud sucking at your boots, reforming under your collective feet. In an immediate procession, the group lets out one collective exhale followed by a release of laughter, like a wave of relief. You begin to make of the faces of your party members. They are dimly lit, ugly motherfuckers, but by the gods, they are beautiful tonight. And who do you see? 
And then that was the opportunity for people to introduce themselves. That reminded me of in the, like, I wish I had knew how to access it quickly, but I'm not going to even try on my phone. But I had done something kind of similar to that. Um, Cause at one point the players had been, there was a major city that they had spent some time in mm-hmm. and they had gone because they needed to go and uh, get some ingredients to make a potion to cure a whole bunch of people. And they come back to the city, but it has been taken over by an armada from another land. Mm. And it's been like under siege. There are some like an adult black dragon is patrolling the skies and things are bleak. And I described um, like basically the first the previous session they had spent um like getting into the city and like I basically put them in charge of like you've you're you're high-ranking members of this mercenary guild now so you're going to plan how you get into the city choose what uh groups of mercenaries go where and what they're supposed to try and accomplish like Mm. they're you know this is them planning the reclamation of their city and then the next then we ended it like just as they got into the city so that I could like start the next session with something like that, like something yeah. describing like, you know, everybody is downtrodden. You pass by sections of the city that are strangely melted. And then you realize that that's the work of the dragons and mm-hmm. like just really set the stage for like this was once a bustling metropolis that has been laid low. Yeah. And at the end of it, like they were all just silent. And I'm like, was that like? What do you guys think? They're like, holy shit. (laughs) And yeah, and I I totally agree. Like sometimes it is just fun to write something out like that so that like you can get everybody into the mindset of that you're just starting a new campaign or Mm -hmm. there's been a turning point in the campaign and you want to make sure that everybody is on the same page. Yeah, and that they're all seeing the same things, you know, in their mind as much as you can conjure up. But just to... I just think it's really important to like make sure people are actually committed to the story and casting vivid imagery helps with that. Um, and I personally come from a, a fine arts background. I am like, I went to university for painting and I think that probably has a lot to do with this for me. It's like, I want to see the set painted in the theater of the mind. I want to like see all the props and I want people to feel immersed. Yeah. So I just want to backtrack real quick. Sean, you, you mentioned something in your thing that you kind of just glided over, but I think is also really important for making an impact. It's not necessarily visual, but the stopping the session at the right point to yeah. continue the next one, I think is a, like, not doing that is a common mistake among DMs, either because, you know, you want to use the time you have and all that's understandable. But, like, if you have the time, and especially if you have a regular game where you know you're going to play next week or in two weeks or whatever, that's... I think a really smart technique because it creates that drama, it creates that interest in what's going to happen next, and also it gives you more time to plan it. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's like it's that kind of thing. Of like you know, I'm, like as you're saying that, just thinking of like, what if your players were were climbing up a cliff and you spend the last half hour of them trying to like this mile high cliff, and there was things they had to deal with and skill checks and maybe fighting some like creatures that flew down to attack them, and then like the one like the player at the front of the pack gets their hand on the the top of the lip of the cliff and then you end the session so that you can make sure that you are ready to describe what's waiting for them at the top or Mm -hmm. that kind of moment where yeah like stopping it so that wait wait wait. leaving them on a cliffhanger is that what you're saying holy shit (laughs) i guess that wasn't on purpose that was not on purpose (laughs) a literal yes a literal cliffhanger so good um but yeah, the um, 
doing writing an intro to a session or a campaign is a great idea, which I, I think I have used in the past, but I may, I've made a note here to remind myself to do it more <laughs> because it is really effective. And especially when you're starting a new story or with people who might not quite have a grip on their character yet or might not have a grip on the other players in the room. I think it does help give everybody a common point of entry that's mm -hmm. different from you're in a bar, describe your characters. Yeah, true. Yeah. yeah, and like with the the thing that I did when they got into the city was that I didn't want them to like be like looking at a map trying to figure out like you know moving a mini through like on the city of the map. So like it was kind of a little bit of choose your own adventure where like I had a paragraph and at the end of the paragraph they'd make a decision like there are you know you can you know there's a lot of enemy soldiers in this city. Are you going to like just run to your destination? Or are you going to try and sneak through? So they try to sneak through. Okay, I've got something here for that. Like I didn't even really make them roll for it because. You know, I know that the group of them together will be able to figure it out. But also, real quick, I think you don't always need to do the, like, big intro. Like, if it's at the start of a campaign or, you know, before a single session, you could just have a short, sweet paragraph to make sure that, yeah, everybody's... Because I think one of the things that I've noticed is when you're starting... At the start of a session, people can be a little rowdy or, mm -hmm. like, they're just they're joking and getting them, especially if you're in a part of your campaign that's maybe a little bit dark or if you're running an eldritch horror campaign you want to get everybody into the mindset of you know you know horror or like terror or whatever it is that you need for that session just get them back in with just a couple of sentences of like and here's where we are right now mhm mm it's a, i think a great way to kind of start off any session is being able to have a couple of sentences at least or you know if you're like i'm not a writer like that's not kind of how my mind ends up working as no matter how much I wish it was a, a different case when I was a teenager. Um, <laughs> but like, if you have, you know, if you have the ability or the time or like, it's a thing you like to do mm -hmm. to write a bigger intro, yeah. that is great. But if you're, you know, if that's not the way your mind tends to, or if you're, you know, sometimes on the show, I wish I I worry that we'll introduce a topic that might be a bit more complicated and the newer DMs are like, oh, I have to do that. It's like, no, you don't have to do it that way, no. but you can. It's, it's a tool you have. Yeah. So like if you're running a game, but you're not like a writer in the style of like writing out a couple of paragraphs or something like that, mm -hmm. you can write a couple of sentences. You can just try and, you know, write down beforehand three things that you want to try to evoke at the start and make sure you get that in there. Um. I think a good place to start would be how to instill a sense of wonder. Like, how would you, yeah. how would you go about, especially because D and D is high fantasy. It's got dragons and crazy flying things and magic and weird monsters. How would you, for like group of people who have maybe never played before, how would you instill that sense of wonder that you're in this potentially a high, high epic adventure, epic high adventure? I can't remember one. Yeah. Term is. <laughs> Anyways, sense of wonder. A sense of wonder. Um, yeah, let me think back on some of my experiences. I think that the sense of wonder that I strive to harness comes from um, things that just purely could not exist in our daily life and things, furthermore, that they've never seen in fantasy yet. I mean, that's a big ask, right? But if you see a dragon come to life that you thought was essentially a pinata, that'll stick with you if you do it right as a DM. Um, or, oh, I'm trying to think of like other cool things I've done. Meh, meh. Too new at this, I guess. I don't have a long list of super impressive things. Oh, yeah. Well, 
Wonder, I think, also comes from social dynamics and not just um, the visuals. Having betrayal within NPCs has worked very well for me. Um, and I don't mean they're betraying the party. I mean they're betraying each other, and that makes them feel fleshed out and real. I had this one story where there was a um, a brother who had tried... There are two brothers, obviously. One of them was trying to become immortal, but his spell had gone wrong. And so he had to basically uh, turn people into mummies and harness their life energy to live. And so that um, the younger brother would bring his older wizard brother people, like travelers, adventurers. Um, and there was this really epic fight, super big. Um, and at the end of it, like it looked like the wizard was going down. He was going to die. Our adventurers were feeling high and mighty and powerful. And so our wizard turned to his younger brother and he sucked the life out of his own brother so that he could raise a couple more evil mummies to face our adventurers. And that was an oh shit moment for our players because it it's like, that guy is really evil, you know? And like I thought I was going to win, but I'm not. So that's crappy. Like those kinds of moments can be captured with words in a very visual way, but I mean, a certain element of wonder is also like accomplished um, by throwing, you know, NPCs under the bus. And it's like that. I've never seen that before in my daily life. And I hope I won't get to see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that highlighting of just like the fact that it is an epic adventure and mm -hmm. you're facing off against, you know, sometimes people probably want a little bit more nuance, like, you know, long term but yes. it's okay to have a moment of somebody showing you that yes they are evil yeah. yeah capital e evil like he just he'll kill his brother so that he can escape or do a little bit more damage to you the party mm -hmm. in his last defiant mo moment of revenge mm -hmm. whatever it is um yeah i think i think that is like a good thing to remember is it doesn't have to always be like constant big things no, like especially yeah. like just said if you're not a writer you're not used to doing this kind of thing mm -hmm. it can be just small things just like small little details that draw people in yeah and that's something that i'm getting to experiment with now because this is i'm running my first like long-term campaign and i've before this only done one shots and with your one shot you don't have a chance for minutia and subtlety <laughs> um but in the long form you got yourself like a sandbox adventure it's like wow there are literally no limits and you're like this is intimidating and then your players are like i don't want to do what you want me to do and you're like well okay fine <laughs> so how do i work in that kind of that storytelling while simultaneously just improving with your friends and that's that's a little bit of a challenge but. yeah i think one of the things with like larger like long-term campaigns and sandbox campaigns is that this kind of like visual impact or emotional impact that you get from like weaving a story yeah. is that it can help motivate your players to do a thing like if like say that the brother uh, that mm -hmm. this evil necromancer wizard whatever guy um, yeah, yeah. had been a friend of the party mm -hmm. like he had kind of he had you know, he had tricked them, he had betrayed them, but like they had known him for a while. Like yeah. that kind of like it would be so much deeper. Yeah. That cut it, would be raw for days. Yeah, and they would it would motivate the players to well, hopefully motivate the players to go after this guy. Or like I think these kind of like these visual impacts and these like these story beats mm -hmm. that stick out in the minds of the players I've at least with the the campaign that I've run and some of the one shots, like those are the things that get the players motivated to be like, that dick, we're gonna go get him. Yeah. Yeah, and I think motivating characters is something that I need more 
history with, you know what I mean? I'm doing my first like long-term campaign and I'm like, all right, let's go. And I had this one adventurer who was just like, nah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go kill that guy in a parade. It's not cool. I'm not going to. And I'm like, I will, I'll, I'll pay you more gold. Do it. And they're like, no. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. This is session one. Thanks a lot. <laughs> but it was actually a really good lesson because like, I'm used to that one shot thing where I'm like, okay, just do it. And everyone's like, okay, I've got four hours. I'll just do it. But now that I've opened up this world where I'm like, okay, actually commit to a character, build a character. And then I'll have somebody at the table who's like, I built this character. My character is not motivated to do that. So how are you as a DM? Could you encourage me to engage with the story you've written? And then this, this is my current challenge. I have to not only write a story I'm interested in telling, but create a story all these players want to play with. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting new balance. Yeah. Yeah, that's. Um, I think that come that brings us to the the classic lesson that we mm-hmm. always heard. I think in the first half of recording these podcasts, if not since then, is that you know, sometimes you just have to talk with your players about stuff. Yeah. And like you know, if you're having trouble with a player, be like, okay, so you know, you didn't your character didn't want to interact with a thing. That's fine. Mm-hmm. What can I do to get your character interested in this? Yeah. Like and you're allowed to have those talks outside of the table and they're they're really helpful tools and like sean will attest to this in doing 47 episodes of this show more or less at this point we hear Mm. something along those lines every other episode at least yeah getting back to the topic though i think (laughs) uh, uh Part of the like that visual impact and invo- mm-hmm. that sense of wonder and what we've been talking about is like evoking a specific mental image, like what you're talking about with this confetti pinata dragon. Mm-hmm. Like that's like some people might have a slightly different idea of like you know what the wings look like, but like the overall mental image is going to be pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's something that you don't have to do like. You don't have to be the best wordsmith to get something like that across. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on just how how you evoke specific mental images. Mm-hmm. In, when you've got something bigger like that, like the, yeah. one of those big set piece moments, how do you get those across to your players? Um, I usually partner it with an implied emotional response, which can be difficult to do. But um, I would... Kind of, you know, you got to make sure that everybody around the table is actually quiet. <laughs> and uh, when you start telling them, like, uh, the story, what's happening around them, and you're describing it, I throw in um, the highlights, right? I don't need to go into the wing shape, whatever. But I, I will describe the way fire trails along the tail up into, like, the, the face of this dragon. And, it, you know, it's snarling, and it looks around, and it... F- eyeballs one of the players in specific and then that player has like this moment of like oh shit i'm pulled into this this is me now this isn't some fantasy that okay how what what's my relationship to this dragon um and i think that those those moments that are kind of like pinpricks that um if it was happening to you in real life you'd need a response and it would initiate a fight or flight or a sense of wonder or genuine fear those those are moments that that I, I want to hit people with. Like I want the butterfly feeling that might happen if you're in an elevator and you were falling. I like that a lot. <laughs> I, I want that so bad. And then I've had people des- describe my play style as spooky because I tend to go for those moments in ways that are like 
threatening to the lives of the characters or really uncanny. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's a good question and it's going to probably come down to your individual DM style. Um, for me, I like a <clears throat> I like to conjure an image that the players have never seen before, right? Um, another good one to come to mind because like, I think it's example-driven in order to drive this point home. Um, and again, I'm talking about visual impact, right? So I want to provide the listeners with that, those visuals. I had somebody get lost in a forest of trees and it found um, themselves in sort of like a circle of trees and uh, tripped over some roots and realized that these roots are actually wires and the whole tr- the trees are all like robotic and they all um, lit up at the same time. And then they were in this forest that's like kind of like a Coraline scene, maybe, you know, like completely turned on its head. What you thought you were going to get into is very different. I like big dramatic reveals is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess something that, that's been running through my head is like if we did like a kind of an exercise of taking something yeah. that a lot of new DMs might be familiar with, which is the beginner's box and the the first have you played through the beginner's box no no um i i played through it twice which was an experience but um i'm kind of thinking like maybe we could take the first scene from that and see like how would we use that scenario to try and like evoke that sense of wonder because basically the setup is basically there's a there's some backstory but basically the players start off on a cart on a road okay. and they come to they they're a day behind the person that hired them to bring all these supplies to this remote mining village and that's the start of the adventure zone yeah because yeah, they were literally playing the, be- the start of the adventure zone okay <laughs> yeah they were playing no, the beginner's is, box this is good for me now i have more context yeah um <laughs> but for those people who don't know the adventure zone um yeah they're on uh there's like two horses pulling a cart and you know, you start off by saying like, well, who's in the cart? Who's driving? Blah, 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 blah. And then you describe them. Um, the most perceptive player will see further down the road, there's what looks like a couple of dead horses. And then they're supposed to describe like what happens. And basically it's a goblin ambush. Mm-hmm. There's two, there's, I think there's four goblins total. There, and they're all hidden in the woods waiting for the players to get up to the horses and then they'll attack. Or if the players decide to hang back and take a look around, they might see them hiding. Um, so I think for, for somebody who's never played and it, it is, this is kind of a like vanilla D and D scenario. Like you're just traveling and then you get ambushed, but. Mm-hmm. I think it can be kind of a good exercise to see, like, yeah, this is the moment where you get introduced to something that's not what you would experience in your everyday life, unless you've experienced goblins, in which case, <laughs> please tell me what you're taking. Um, but, like, how would you go about kind of evoking that sense of wonder, of, like, fantasy in this introduction to D&D that I think a lot of people will experience? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the factors, okay, because it is sort of a, of a vanilla experience, I'd have to throw another element on it. Like I'd have to put another glaze to use an art term, right? So, um, it might be nighttime, it might be foggy, it might be raining, but some type of additional visual element that will help them picture something more exciting than just a path, you know? Um, I think for me, if I was going to spice it up, I, I would want to have... Like, let's say there are long grasses and these grasses are a color that the players have never seen before. So now it's not just a road, but it's like 
um, bluegrass blowing in, in the, in the wind and it's pre-storm and you can tell the rain's coming and somebody has to perceive there's a goblin, but they'll see that head poke up and it'll just be blue. You know, like it will be the same as the grass. And now they're not quite sure what they have seen and they're like, okay, what is it? Well, I didn't, you know, that kind of element, um, the self-doubt is, is really important, um, in creating a spooky element. Um, and so I'd want to throw something like that, just kind of making it my my own twist, or I would encourage young DMs to see, uh, like, hmm, how do you word this? <laughs> this is so weird, but make it as cool as it could be. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't think that there's too, too, too much, um, okay, this is like, I'm sorry, I'm kind of developing these theories as I talk, right? <laughs> That's fine. You can also pause for a moment if you, if you think that'll help you. I guess I could. <laughs> There are many reasons people play Dungeons and Dragons. Some people play it to win the game. If you're playing it to win the game, it doesn't matter what color the goblins are or the grasses. But if you're playing it to create an immersive experience, as I do, and a social experience that evokes emotion, as I do, and it develops friendships and it awards improvisational skills and role playing, then you have to introduce more facets than just a literal bump in the road. Um, and that can be uh, established, I believe, through emotional reactions. Um, and it's not just enough to be surprised, but uh, if how you would solve this problem in real life is no longer applicable, then I think you're doing something right. So if you're looking around and you just see this goblin in the grass, that makes a lot of sense to a player. That's not necessarily a fantasy issue. So I'll throw more fantasy at it, just, you know, like money in a strip club. Um, <laughs> and that'll trip people up and that'll help them lose themselves in the game. Yeah. It's funny because when you mentioned like making it foggy or making it rainy, every time that I've pictured it in my head, I've pictured like Lord of the Rings, picturesque English countryside, you know, path through the woods, you know, tree trees like um arching over yeah. with like that you know god beams coming through mm-hmm. and there's just some horses up ahead that are just dead on the ground and that's how i pictured it first too and then you got to stop yourself as a dm and you got to be like how can i add spice to this yeah yeah because yeah the, I, yeah i like the idea of like changing up changing up the weather yeah. making making the grass a different color mm-hmm. that's something that's immediately just like like you, and you can just you don't have to go into detail with it you mm-hmm. can just be like yeah and the red grass is is uh waving in the wind you can tell a storm is approaching and they're just like wait red grass what did you say <laughs> yeah yeah and then now it's not just this english countryside for them it's a fantasy world and they are out of their element you are not in kansas anymore yeah, <laughs> it's not black and white. It's also red now. <laughs> yeah. So we've kind of covered a lot of just getting True. the images into people's heads. Mm-hmm. I think with D&D, I think most people, at least, when they're playing amongst them, them themselves with their friends. <laughs> when they're playing with themselves. <laughs> they tend to be playing with a battle mat or some or minis Ooh, yes, or something please, like that. Please let's discuss this. So <laughs> how do you go from you've just evoked this this amazing image in their heads of like, okay, there's these four blue goblins charging you through the the, the purple grass. Mm-hmm. And now you're on a battle mat, like a beige battle mat with these little you know, if you're like me, unpainted white minis. <laughs> 
Oh, I paint them. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's actually a, a translation that I don't care for. So I have um, I've only really done one um, session with minis, uh, and it evoked feelings for me for sure. Um, it is tactically much easier to envision a large battle. So props or props are due. If you're going to be fighting four or more baddies, I love the idea of having minis on the table. But it takes you out of that headspace. And it's the same with like roll 20. You know, if if people are playing it and they're like, this is a bad video game, then you're going to struggle to do your job. Um, and then that's how I feel about the tabletop thing. Because it's just, if you've got a mat in front of you and um, you've got whatever, one orc, but that's not how you've described your character, but that's the only mini you have. People are going to envision it in, envision it in their mind uh, as that, like, crudely painted uh, one foot, or sorry, one inch tall little guy. If you've got a one foot yeah. orc mini uh, compared to... It would to be <laughs> very intimidating. <laughs> I mean, there are spells that make you bigger, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I really want to, like, touch on one of the issues that I have had translating um, my theater of the mind into the mat. Um, and I understand that this is a problem that occurred because I'm new to Dungeons and Dragons, but I was so upset for like a little while. I was just fucking outraged. I like had a very angry lunch break (laughs) one day (laughs) and just ranted about it to my partner. Um, okay. So let me paint you a little bit of the story here. So like, let's say that we are playing, um, and we're doing, doing a theater of the mind and there's a, there's a bad guy there. He's 35 feet away from you. He's a move speed of 30 feet. Um, just an average guy holding a dagger, scary guy, but he's going to make a run at you. He's going to use his turn to do that action. So he runs dagger drawn 30 feet, but he's five feet away from you. So at the end of your turn, you're safe. It's all good. And then I, that's kind of my player experience. Everything I had done until that point said, that's fine. I'm safe. It's good. And then we brought a mat out and now, when the bad guy runs up to you and he has transversed, if that's the correct word, I'm so excited, I might be mispronouncing things, but if he goes this 30 feet, each hexagonal little um, mark on that map represents five feet, so he's right beside you, right? And then he can attack. So if you're doing it in the theater of mind, he can't, and if you're doing it on a map board, he can, and I just couldn't deal with it, and it was like <laughs> so, so, so upsetting, but... I did more research, and it turns out that um, melee weapons have a five-foot range, so he'd be able to attack you in either case. And my obsession with it was unfounded, but uh, for a while there, I was just upset. So there is that issue of how you envision something, I know, right, in your mind is different than what the board dictates. Yeah, I'm just, oh, well, just for reference, I just held up my hand thinking, like, a five-foot range for a melee weapon. Yeah. I never really thought about it. Like, I guess with a sword or yeah, with a spear. that's the thing. Even a dagger counts. Even a dagger by the books. With a dagger. Like, my arm is, <gasps> what, two and a half feet? Three, yes. Like, maybe three feet? No. No? I Jesse mean, might be because Jesse's a big guy. But I mean, if you include, like, a lunge. <laughs> yeah. But even then, like, that's... That's also assuming that the other player is standing on the edge of that five-foot space they're occupying. Thank you. Yeah. The, I think the, the, this is one of the things that I've, I've heard people talk about, which is basically um, there's kind of two two sides to D&D. There's the, like, the imagination space of it where you've got like dragons and you're describing the story with rich detail. Mm-hmm. And then there's the simulationist aspect of it. Of mm-hmm. like It's the reason why there's dice rolling, where you have to simulate 
like you have to put in some random chance to see like yeah you're in the middle of a battle like you might be really good at hitting people but something might have happened that caused you to miss or it clanged off their armor or their hide was too tough whatever it is there's that simulationist aspect that canon does break down when you bring too fine of a Mm -hmm. uh, attention to it and i think one of the things that i'm going to try especially now that i'm on roll 20 and i have this bad habit of because i'm on roll 20 putting way too much effort into the maps and the images Mm -hmm. and everything because like when i was playing on just a battle map i would spend like 10 minutes with some graph paper and be like cool i've got a map Mm -hmm. like i don't like i don't have to worry about um making it look nice because i'm going to use wet erase markers on this battle mat and erase it afterwards but when it's on a computer screen it feels a little bit different like i feel like Mm. i can't just describe it and then throw up this like crudely drawn map but i think i need to get back to that because it's so much easier to explain things and this is also something i've run into when i'm running on a battle mat is that i want there to be terrain features or i mm-hmm. want there to be like you know like if there there's one fight they were having um where they were on a they were underwater in a shipwrecked ship love that that had a pocket of air in it and there was um like they were in the hold of this ship and on the sides there were all of these ancient boxes and crates with netting keeping them in and the ship was like tilted and i had this like really awesome scene so- figured out and then, like, further on, there was this, like, underwater temple that they were trying to get to. Yeah. And trying to do that on a battle mat mm-hmm. was... I just felt like I was working with one hand tied behind my back. Trying to, like, yeah. get them Completely. into the battle and trying to... Because I think it's the the eternal struggle of the DM is to try and get players... Because it feels like as soon as you put down the battle mat, it turns into a board game. Like you've got five squares of movement Mm -hmm. and you can do a thing or you can move two squares and fire an arrow and then move two more squares. Oh, what is that squiggle? Oh, that's a chair. Like, whereas (laughs) when you're completely in theater of the mind, it not only draws the players in, but it means that you have more exciting battles. I agree. Um, I agree. And oh, sorry, please. Oh, no, you can go ahead first. I can make my point after. It's fine. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I was going to say, like, part of the allure for me of Dungeons & Dragons is that it's, it doesn't um, require a screen, right? So you're able to interact with your friends only based on what you say and what you all agree in this, like, um, this mutually agreed upon illusion, right? It's all before you in your eyes, but that that's it. And I think adding a map kind of um, um, is a step backwards. It might be necessary sometimes, but it, it can pull you back to... Every other game, every other form of entertainment now, right? Because you're looking together at this, like, this screen, for lack of better words, or this this mat, or, like, this board game board. And I love Dungeons & Dragons because it's all about improvising um, and being creative with your buddies. And I... Th- oh, go ahead. You had yes, something you yes. I think actually directly, uh, right. like, related yeah. to that point is it also just sometimes... And, like, I use a map a lot of the time, but that's because I started in 4th Ed and you had to have one basically (laughs) for the game to work um but it also can bring the momentum a session has to a screeching halt as you need to stop and draw the map Mm. or like you know if you have it 
somewhere else, pull it out and put it down. Get everybody to move their drinks and their books and their papers. Yeah. And then, then you realize one of the players has decided that his mini is farther back than it was when they were talking. And yeah. it's like this, it's, it's a whole thing. And like, I love the map sometimes. And I think for, I think for big boss fights, totally. it can be really good, especially cause like you can, and like, it doesn't matter if your players see it beforehand, you can put it on the table and then describe it as they enter it. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, some people are, and like I fall into this trap where I'm like I can't put it down until they're using it, mm. and then you know screeching halt. Mm-hmm. Um, but like it really does. Have we talked? I feel like we've talked about those ones before with um, with someone. But like it, the the transition just can completely screech the game to a halt. You know, somebody checks their phone, somebody <laughs> wanders off, somebody, yeah. you know, whatever. It's um, so I'm. I'm, I think, also going to try and stick with more theater of the mind going forward, at least where I can. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, one of the things that I've heard on other podcasts or seen on places where people are discussing this is that people are worried that classes that have, or like somebody, say somebody built their character around having a polearm with the feet that means that they can like stop somebody who's charging them 10 feet away before they get within melee distance and like oh how can you do that if you're not on a mat and you can see like how many squares away they are it's like Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you like how does not having a mat mean that you can't do that like if somebody's charging at you then you stop them 10 feet away (laughs) like you don't have to have a mat to describe those kind of things and i think like my understanding with Fori was that yeah you had to have a map because so many of the powers were literally like you know a five foot ten foot square they measured distance in squares oh they measured distance in squares yeah um and in 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 many ways fourth edition was a very lovely game and i have a fondness for it but it that is one of the major criticisms of it and it's pretty well deserved but i think with with 5e playing through it um and having read through the book a bunch of times because i'm a geek like that um i haven't seen anything like there might be one or two things that might be a little bit difficult to do in theater of the mind but Mm -hmm. it just requires discipline either from well preferably from the player because if a player has a feature that that depends on how far away something is like if they're if they've got a pole arm and they want to be able to stop something when it gets when it's charging them mm-hmm. or if they're an archer or somebody they, they want to throw their dagger and they want they need to know how far away they are i think the thing with D and theater of the mind is that like fudge it like if you think that they're close enough like if the character like if you describe somebody like you're in this giant church and you have just walked in the door and there's you know the evil archbishop is about to do some dark sacrament or whatever and your rogue is like i throw my dagger at him and you're like no (laughs) like it you have to get closer before you can do that like it's not something that you have to really worry about like going down and counting how many squares away they are so you can figure out how many feet away they are it's something that i think once you get into the habit of it and i've seen this with with actual plays like the adventure zone did pretty good about like i think after the first episode they stopped really caring about how far away somebody was it's Mm -hmm. just like Unless Griffin specifically said, like, they are too far away for you to charge them and attack, then it was just like, yeah, charge them and attack. Like, there's not much to yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I think oh, I had a point in, in like, halfway through your, oh, your bit, and now I've <laughs> stumbled on what it was. About players remembering stuff. Yes. Like, yeah, that's... 
that's a thing that both the player and the DM can work to remember together. And I think between the two of them, you can remember to like interrupt someone's attack. Uh, but also, uh, this is the actual point I wanted to make now. Mm-hmm. Um, you were talking about somebody kind of interrupting a descriptive period to throw a dagger and attack. And I think getting back to our main topic, if you get your players in the habit of listening to you describe something, and you're doing it often enough, like like you say you do with your games, um, I think your players eventually just get trained to let you do that because mm-hmm. it's part of the story and that's part of the game and it's part of the fun too because you get to the end point where you're like, and what do you do? And then they get to respond and they can be thinking about what while you're talking about what they're going to do. Um, and I think that's uh, like a really kind of lovely thing about adding more focus on trying to create a visual impact with your players is it'll also allow you to make those story beats and your players will learn oh yeah they're they're doing a monologue they're doing a description we can let them finish and then we can and then we can do what we want to do i think though tying back into some of the stuff that we've talked about previously is that well before that i think i think you're always going to have a player who like the moment they walk in a door and you say and at the end of the hallway there's they're going to say i throw my dagger like you're always going to have people who are being asses about that kind of stuff but tying it back into that like evoking mental images and that sense of wonder Mm -hmm. is that maybe in a situation where you know they're walking into this cathedral like you you spend a little bit of time just describing how big it is how high these arched colonnades are and just how massive this space is so that they understand that they're going to spend some time walking towards this guy and talking (laughs) to him and shutting him down before they'll be able to throw a dagger Mm -hmm. and yeah also, getting back to the map point, if you're not using a map, it's helpful because you're, you can just be, it's a really huge space. You don't have to actually have the measured footage of it out. I mean, it's nice. <laughs> yeah. Like one of the things, actually talking about a map, because one of the things that I've heard about with like first edition D&D was that it was the player's job to make a map. Really? Like when they're going through a dungeon, it's the player, like the DM will have his copy of the well, map yeah, that, makes that, ha- sense. that has like secrets and everything marked on it. Yes. But it's the player's job to keep their own map because they didn't have battle mats. Mm-hmm. Like there might be somebody who had, like Jesse gave me this like giant grid paper that has, it's it's graph paper that's got one inch squares. Mm-hmm. So I could draw on it with like a marker and make yeah. like throwaway maps. But most of the time people like people who were playing they were like the player like one of the players' job was to be the mapper i don't know what the proper term cartographer is. that's what it yeah. is yeah <laughs> um so it was one player's job to be the cartographer and to have the map of the dungeon so that they knew like okay we've come to a t intersection yeah. i need to draw that out and doing like a theater of the mind and having one of the players be the cartographer would have been incredible incredibly useful in the beginner's box because the final dungeon Mm -hmm. is too big for any table oh my god the map is well not only is the map massive like if you try to draw it like take the map and blow it up so that you can fit minis on it yeah it's bigger than most kitchen tables by like almost half and the other thing is that it's 10 foot square so it's like that kind of thing where like I think that's one of the things that really messed me up about some of the maps in the beginner's box is that they're 10 foot squares, which everybody forgets every round where somebody's like, okay, I'm going to move my 30 feet and they move that many squares. And you're like, you just moved 60 feet. Mm -hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. like, 
Wait, what? Oh, 10 foot squares. <laughs> God damn it. But if you are doing this theater of the mind thing where you can just be like, yeah, there's you're in this big 60 foot square room. Mm. Like there's less trying to reference like a map that you're looking at with the way that you've played every other dungeon that you've been in. Yeah. And okay, so I have never as a player played in a dungeon, but I'm going to introduce one into this uh, campaign that I'm leading. And it will be a labyrinth and I will not provide my players with a map. So they're going to have to track it themselves. Um, and it's not going to be an easy, like, space by space, oh, one left, uh, three forward thing. It will be a traditional labyrinth, and that is circular. So it'll be very difficult for people to keep track of. I'm looking forward to this as a challenge. But I was interested in just for my sake, do you guys have experiences as players, like, playing in a dungeon? Do you have advice for a new DM who's introducing that? Actually, I do, but it's something that I've I've read and something that I'm going to be doing soon, mm. which was um, the not the lazy dungeon master, the angry DM, Ooh. I think. Oh, okay. Um, he was t- he had this series on building a mega dungeon, which is a dungeon big enough to contain a a, a campaign, like a medium sized yeah. campaign. And one of the things that he was talking about was introducing to your players how to map a large space like that Mm -hmm. and what he came up with was that on the first or second day they come across a dead explorer who has a map of where the players have been and some places they haven't but it's not a map like you think of like oh he's drawn out grid squares no he's drawn out like he'll have a word like entrance hall and he'll have circled it and then he'll like the next big room because there'll be like connecting corridors that might be you know a few minutes or an hour to 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 traverse words to traverse um but the next room would be like the feasting hall and then he would have on his peach of piece of parchment I cannot talk today. That's a tough one. (laughs) (laughs) On his piece of parchment, he would have written uh, feasting hall and then circled that and drawn a line between them Mm -hmm. so that the players understand they don't have to accurately map out. They just have to understand that, oh, from the entrance hall, there is a corridor that takes us to the feasting hall. Mm -hmm. And then from the feasting hall where we are now, there's a corridor that will take us to the armory. Mm -hmm. And you can, one of the benefits to that was that you can kind of plot out the big areas where like story beats happen or the big encounters, but it means that you've got room in between those rooms to just do like a random encounter because they need to be challenged as they're moving through this dungeon. Yeah. That's a really good tip. I had not heard of that. And that was brilliant. (laughs) I'm trying to think of like, cause we did things like those in school for like planning events. It's like a mind map, mind map. So like a mind map style dungeon layout, uh, sounds super useful. If your, um, uh, advice I have is if you're doing something that has more corridors and like, that's kind of based on it. Um, especially if it's a long term, those tend to, I I know as a player, I sometimes lose interest in them if nothing interesting happens. Um, or if it's like, just there are fights, um, so my my tip would be try and introduce ways to for short periods of time separate the party. Ooh, no spooky. Okay. Um, so uh, what I did in a dungeon that I was running was I had they came upon this kind of just small pillar of stone with a jewel on top of it, like 
And Super Indiana Jones right now. Yeah, and it's like, it's an obvious trap. Yeah. But there's always, always, always somebody super motivated by treasure. And they want to try and take it. Or somebody who's just motivated by, what happens if I do this? Yes. <laughs> so, those are my favorite players. Um, sometimes. Obvi- and mm. obvious traps are always so much fun because you know that they're going to do the thing. Yeah. Oh, uh, I got a good one to yeah. share after. And the best part, especially if you're not doing a traditional grid map, is the person who picks it up only them or maybe them and the person directly behind them you know have it be a turning room Mm -hmm. have it slide out and come out somewhere else and have it be close enough that like you know maybe they pass a door they couldn't get through on the way there and maybe they can figure out oh well maybe we can figure out a way to get through that door maybe they can open the door from the other Mm -hmm. side and then have smaller uh monster fights that are mostly meant to be inconveniences as opposed to like super deadly unless you want to create that tension where Mm -hmm. the players are trying to meet back up and they're also trying to dodge a deadly like a very dangerous monster but like you know be like some skeletons come out of the wall or or whatever um and their cleric has now been separated from them yeah yeah good yes (laughs) um so like i found that was really useful in creating a bit of tension in what would have otherwise been a fairly monotonous dungeon crawl especially if you want to have that uh like that space that they do have to traverse before getting to whatever the central or important location is yeah um excellent one one of the things that i wanted to it just popped up into my mind is like having those what do you call them not not necessarily games but those tricks when you're exploring you're like those riddles those puzzles that people have to solve and they're just like cruel for the sake of being cruel (laughs) i found a very good one um there's a big red button uh beside a locked door and then above it is a timer and uh, it has 10 seconds on it and one of the players will obviously hit the button in attempts to open this door and then the countdown will start and go nine eight seven and they'll just panic all the shit um and the key is if they let it get if they hit the button again it'll go back to 10 seconds and it'll keep the countdown going and if they let it get to zero the door opens <laughs> and that's it <laughs> it just <laughs> would uh, would fuck with them and you know what i will do that at some point yeah. in this campaign it's, it's too good no that's great uh, and actually another good example i have um especially if there is magic like yeah. in it is illusions so okay. have them uh this happened in a game i was playing we walked into a space and it was a dead end, and we turned around, and it was a dead end on the other oh, side. I like that. And there was like a riddle on the wall, and it was something along the lines of, um, like, face west, or face like look look at this, or something like that. And the trick ended up being that you had to be looking at the new the newly formed wall, and walking backwards through the other illusion illusory wall in order oh. to progress through the dungeon. Oh, that's cool. And like, I am stealing that. That's yeah, so cool. I you know what I need to ask um I think her name was Jasmine, the the lady who was running that game where she found it cuz she found a bunch of those puzzles on a site somewhere. And they like they were super clever but never too clever that we spent too much time trying to figure out how to get through them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cuz that is one of the things with with puzzles is that I think it, it might be one of the downsides to doing theater of the mind and not having like something that you can place in front of them is that you have to like describing something means that you might forget something, you might leave something yeah. out, or you might not create the picture well enough in their heads that they're able to understand like which way they're supposed to face or like how things are arranged. Um, yeah. 
I've got other puzzle things, but I'm not going to go into it because I could talk for hours about some of the stupid puzzle things I found. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there uh, anything else that you want to impart upon our listeners about visual impact, uh, mm. sense of wonder evoking these images in, in players' heads? Or do you just want to rant a little bit more about battle mats? <laughs> like battle mats. Um, <laughs> let me see, because I had some some notes. But let me see. Hold on. Yeah, okay, I'm going to mention this. Um, <laughs> like, D&D was originally created based off small war miniatures, right? And uh, medieval warfare figurines that were, like, I think, pewter. Um, and so there was that idea of, like, this battle will be represented by small minis. And so it's interesting that when I first started playing, I didn't, I didn't get introduced to it through um, using minis, like your tiny little dolls walking around. I, when it was all about, like, what can you envision together? And um, I think that, I think Dungeons and Dragons is most effective when you are not reliant upon a pawn. I think w it's the best when you're able to um, describe something so well that your people feel immersed in it and it is impossible to be immersed in a grid. That I'm just gonna come to terms with that. Um, I don't think that you can, um, I don't think like the small painted plastic pieces represent a big enough threat to the well-being of anybody's character. So yeah, anyway, I wanted to talk about how it started there and how I think, for myself at least, when it is the most successful, it's not overly reliant upon those minis anymore. I mean, there are some minis that are objectively terrifying when you pull them out, like the... The, the Colossal Red Dragon one that I have? The clo the Colossal Red Dragon, which is literally like like two feet tall. Jesus. It's a giant mini that when you pull it out and place it on the battle map, yeah. players are going to go, oh, okay, we're leaving now. Yeah. <laughs> I, saw, I saw a great video of somebody who built a, uh, it was like an end of campaign. Like they were meant to be, they had just killed like a god, which was like something like, it was a two foot mini this guy had built. And killing this avatar of this dead elder god brought the elder god back and he had built this like seven foot long four foot high giant mini that had like smoke effects and stuff i'll what? try and find the video but it was this whole thing where he's describing it because it, it was in the game he described it as like the sky rips open and this god is bigger than the horizon and he had a mini for it because mm -hmm. they were playing on a battle mat so they needed one so interesting thing about the dragon mini it is essentially useless as a mini because it's so big that like any map you can have on a kitchen table is uh not going to be very effective with it <laughs> because it's like it's it's base is i think 20 by 20 squares or something like that and it's just, so it's just this giant thing and it's like really you can only move it in a straight line <laughs> mm -hmm. wow it is useful for the the like what factor though yeah. actually just one real quick something that just occurred to me yeah. with D D and dragons yeah. is that i feel like because one of the things that uh, i've read and i totally agree with is that i feel like people don't play dragons properly Ooh, okay because a dragon because you know we're used to playing on a battle mat so people will take their dragon figurine and place it on the battle mat mm -hmm. and then they'll move it around like it's crawling around on the ground but a dragon especially an older dragon it's only going to be on the ground once it's been wounded enough to not be able to fly. Like a drag, like a, 
proper villainous smart dragon is going to strafe the party. It's going to use its magic from way high up in the air, mm -hmm. like out of bowshot range. Mm -hmm. It's going to do a yeah strafing run and light part of the village on fire before flying flying away and then doing another strafing run. And that's something that you can't really do with the mini because they've got a flying speed of like 120 feet or something, which means Ooh. that... Yeah, which means that like if it flies like across the width of the table, it's not on the table during that flying. No, the beginning or end of the turn, it's it, off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like it's one of those things of just trying to play on a mat means yeah. that you're dumbing down creatures that yeah. should be... <coughs> Sorry. No worries. That should be smart and terrifying to face. And having them be stuck on the grid because that's where the players are because mm -hmm. doing stuff in theater of the mind means that like the players can figure out like okay how do we get it down mm -hmm. how do we keep it down how do we injure it enough so that it's going to retreat to its layer where it's going to be boxed in like all of those kind of things that you can't do if you just you walk into a village and here's the dragon mini and you're going to chase it around the map for a while mm -hmm. no totally um and then they kind of on on that um uh the Origins of Dungeons and Dragons being like medieval warfare would be like there's there's like a cavalry of people, right? So it's very, very helpful to have a mat when you're trying to track large quantities of, of people. But if you're facing off with one magical being such as a dragon, then that mat is purposeless. And I think it as a DM, it's your responsibility to make that call. What will be more of a visual impact for the players? Seeing something represented um, in front of them or seeing something in their minds? And I think that that's our job. Yeah, describing a you know their in impending encounter as the sun goes dark for a moment as something flies across the face of the sun Ooh. versus plonk. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah, or you know, like um, with the Tome of Beasts that I got, there are cave dragons which can like burrow mm. real real. They they have a burrow speed instead of a flying speed. That's awesome. So or bullets that can dig through the ground really quickly. Like these are things yeah. that are so much easier to do in theater of the mind than when you're trying to like, well, yeah, I'm just going to pick up this mini because it, it, uh, you know, dug underneath the ground. You guys can't see it anymore. Mm -hmm. Like being able to describe like, yeah, it turns to the ground and starts digging up earth and you can feel the earth, the ground shaking as it moves beneath you, but you don't know where it is. It's interesting. Cause I think it also makes your job harder to then have to keep track of where the mini would be burrowing under the ground. Like you have to keep yeah. in mind the speed and stuff. And when you're just doing mm -hmm. theater of the mind, doesn't really matter. <laughs> I cheat either way. <laughs> I know, but we're not supposed to admit that, Sean. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the biggest secret is that GMs tend to cheat like almost yeah. all the time. They're, yeah. they're places that you shouldn't, but... It makes the story more interesting. Yeah, basically. Generally. Mm -hmm. All right, Taryn. Mm -hmm. If you were to go back in time to when you first ran a game, or your first one shot, I guess. Yeah. Um... What's a piece of advice you'd give yourself about creating a visual impact for your players? Okay, this is a good question. Um, the advice that I would give myself for any new DM would be that um, effective Dungeons & Dragons is similar to improv and that you, if your character says, I want to try to do something, it's your job to say yes and. Um, and that's really important for getting them to engage with the illusion. So if we're talking about the importance of a visual sort of experience um, and they want to try to do something and you say, you know what, that's just not going to happen. You can't even try. 
then they'll be butthurt for the rest of that session because they were trying to interact with this thing that you built for them. They were trying to do it. Like, so if they're trying to switch that diamond out on top of that booby trap and you're like, you know what? It's just glued in place. You can't even, don't, don't waste your time. Don't even roll for that, right? Then they're going to be like really um, resentful, honestly. Yeah, I think the the yes and or the yet I think is super important. I think the one thing that DMs also have to have a little bit of experience with is the the no but the yeah. like because because sometimes yeah like get, making sure that you're, when your players want to engage that you figure out yeah. how they can engage. But there's always going to be like I jump up the cliff. It's two hundred feet tall. True. True. <laughs> um, important. But like usually it's fairly common sense of just like well yeah you jump up and now you're. 10 feet higher than you were stuck to the side of this cliff. Like there's always, I think the end just becomes a way of reworking what they were trying to do so that they still can do something. Yeah. And um, I want to touch on a, I think it was, this was from a previous episode of this podcast when uh, Jalen was on, she was talking about how um, a good way of DMing would be to like allow your players to do something. Even if you're pretty sure it's not in the rules, they want to try it. You'd be like, okay, we'll do it. And then after the session, we're going to look up the rules and then moving forward from there, we'll know how it really should be played. And that would, that really stuck with me. And I think that's part of it too, for part of that yes. And, or that no. And you're like, they want to try it this time. And I'm pretty sure they can't, but like, let's try it because when it comes down to it, we're here to have a good time and to play this game. And we're not here to be like, like tied to the rules. We're here to tell a story together. And um, that's something that I, I think I made mistakes on in the past, and I would definitely want to do better. Same here. Forward. Yes. Yeah. Also me. Okay. Good. <laughs> I'm not alone. I think I think every DM, well, most DMs, most good DMs have something that they look back on and go, "Oh, that was just stupid." Yeah, yeah I definitely have that. And my player was like, "Hey, man, it was good except for this part," and I was like, "Oh shit." I just thought that you were trying to, like, fact check a rule. And I was like, no, I'm the DM, so my rules are the rules. And then I, for me, it was a small thing. And then for that player, it's like, that kind of, like, put me in a headspace of not wanting to interact with the game anymore. And you're like, ah, shit. So that's, <laughs> that's what I'd say. How lucky, though, to have a player who actually would yeah, just be just like, hey, man, didn't enjoy this thing. It was yeah. kind of, like, that is actually pretty difficult to find. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. You got to appreciate those people who, like, help you grow and be better. Yeah. Totally. Anyways, is there anything that you'd like to plug before we wrap this all up? Yeah, I would like to plug Zero uh, D Twenty. We are um, an all-female play D and D podcast, and we are working on our next um, season. It's a whole new story, um, and it's called uh, The Vile Legacy. And I'm I'm pretty pretty pumped. I want to get in on that. I want to I want people to hear it. It's good. It's all all, all girls, which is fun because um, we kind of have underrepresented voices and. It's not super rare to see a nerdy girl anymore, but there's always like that sort of like, well, you're not a nerd because you can't recite the, the fucking dungeon master guide to me. And you're like, I can still be into something without knowing all the rules. Anyway, so I feel like that's super important because, um, yeah, you only learn those things through exposure, right? And so you want to play with girls who are like-minded or people who are like-minded. Anyway, um, so it's super cool if there are ladies listening to this who want more representation for themselves, then 0D20 is a good place to find it. Yeah. yeah. That's my plug. Cool. All right. Thank you so much for coming out. This yeah. was a blast. It was a blast, right? That was probably too loud. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> but it was a blast. Yeah. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you. Okay. And uh, thank you, folks, for listening. Bye. 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 Our art is done by the wonderful Haley Moros. 
Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. You can find us on social media at, at DMs of Vancouver and also on Facebook. Uh, you can find this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and t- tell your friends about the show. Word of mouth really helps shows like ours grow and find an audience. And we're also part of the Cave Goblin Network. You can find our shows and many others at cavegoblins.com. And you can support us and the rest of the network at patreon.com slash cavegoblins. Yeah, every little bit helps out and it's going to go towards paying our hosting fees and then eventually hopefully getting everybody better editing. Hello, goblins. We want to know more about you, our listeners, so we can try to get some sponsorship to support our network and our creators. We love podcasting and putting out content, but it can be financially strenuous, as we're sure many of you know. Head to cavegoblins.com survey and answer some quick questions to be in the draw to win a $20 Amazon gift card. I was told that once the earth was shaped like a dish. This was a time before mortals or the law. That time has long since passed and no one tells those stories anymore. All they care to tell these days, over and over again, are the tales of Frost Cricket. Hear them all on the Cave Goblin Network. Hey, my name is Eric. I'm Piers. And this is Podcast vs. Podcast. You're listening to us here on the Cave Goblin Network. We take turns pitching podcasts to each other. We're trying to find a good podcast to do because we don't have any ideas. So turn off whatever show you're listening to. Turn on our show.